Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. This week, I talk with Michael Graff, editor of Charlotte Magazine and a freelance writer for SB Nation Longform, Washingtonian Magazine, and Politico. Before taking over Charlotte Magazine, Graff was an editor and writer for Our State Magazine in North Carolina for four years. But first, a couple notes. Brooke Jarvis was our guest in episode 33. Since we talked with her, she had another story published. This piece is titled 17 Shots in Pasco, and it ran in Seattle Met Magazine. We'll link to it on the website. You should make time to read this story because it's phenomenal. Secondly, in episode 34, Mike Wilson mentioned a story he had read titled The Root of All Things by Nathan Thornburg. We've already linked to it on the website, but wanted to let you know that Thornburg will be our next guest on the podcast to talk about that story as well as his other work. So thanks, Mike, for the heads up. Now back to Michael Graff. On June 4th, SB Nation Longform published Graff's piece, Two Lanes to Akko Keek. The story is an at-times graphic tale about a street race that turned tragic in the most unimaginable way. We'll talk about that story, as well as some of Graff's work with Charlotte Magazine, including a story about the world's greatest female skydiver in her quest to become the first woman with 20,000 skydives. As always, we've linked to many of Graff's stories on our website, which you can find at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Michael, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, let's start by talking about uh, your most recent story uh, on SB Nation Longform, which was it ran, uh, you know, first uh, of June, June fourth, I think, uh, mm-hmm. titled yeah. Two Lanes to Ak- Ak- um, Two Lanes <laughs> to Akakik. Akakik. Yes, I just Akakik, asked you how to yeah. say it, and I still <laughs> butchered it. So. Um, <laughs> It just ran on June 4th, uh, and I tell you, that story just left me with this visceral feeling uh, that I couldn't shake after I read it. I, I, I thought about it all day long. Um, can, you t- can you talk a little bit about what the story is about? Yeah, yeah. The story is about, um, it's, it's, well, I guess I can go back a little bit. The story is about this, this stretch of road that I, I sort of grew up driving, and I knew um, very, very well. It's a stretch of road that uh, is three miles, about three miles long, and it's right in the middle of this 30-mile highway that connects Washington, D.C. to um, a little town at the end on the Potomac River called Indian Head. And um, I grew up near Indian Head. The, the, um, the zip code that my parents had was Indian Head, actually. And so I actually delivered pizzas along this road and, and knew it well and, and sort of knew that people raced on it and knew that I had, that, um, you know, my, my best friend and I, we used to sort of just jokingly sort of race off the line for, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, a half a mile or something before we sort of stopped and, and, and went on our way. But so in 2008, on uh, February 16th, 2008, at 3 in the morning, um, there was an organized street race happening 
and it was happening in the darkest point in the road, and there were about 400, or some say some say between 200 and, and 500 people in the, uh, there as spectators. And um, this happens a lot, and there are a lot of bets placed, and these two cars show up, the uh, Camaro and a Mustang, and they're, they show up on trailer beds. I mean, they are sort of official street racing cars. They have these special tires that they have to spin the slickness off of to, to catch the to catch the ground when they when they go. And um, so these bets are placed. And um, this was actually the second race of the night that they were having there. And these two cars take off. And as they take off, all the people get into the middle of the road and um, start to watch and hope to see if their car won. And this has been happening for for 50 years there, um, back to back to the sort of days when even you know my friend's parents and my father grew up there. They used to race on the same stretch of road, um, sort of just part of the culture there. And so everybody went out on the road to see who won. And on this night, it just happened to be a, a night when, from behind them, these um, these two other young men were sort of playfully racing, not involved in the main street race, and they were coming up behind the crowd, and nobody heard them because of the the roar of the engines from the, the two main street racing cars, and these two cars um, came up behind them, and the one who won the ra- or the, the the one who was the lead driver in the other uh, in the second race um, actually ran over and killed eight people and injured several more. Um, flying through there at about 102 miles an hour and um, before he was able to even hit the brakes and, and see what was happening. Um, and it was just this, uh, it was sort of, an, I, I, it's sort of a defining moment in that, where, that area where I grew up. Um, I happened to be, I remember the day very well because I was living in North Carolina at the time. I was working at a newspaper in Fayetteville, um, North Carolina near Fort Bragg, and I, my brother had just moved into an apartment in Arlington, Virginia, and he had been trying to get me to come up for a couple of weeks to go to hang out and eat at the restaurants up there and sort of hang out with him. So that weekend I happened to be up there, and of course, you know, my when I was up there, my family decided they were going to visit, and we were going to have lunch together on that sun, that Saturday, and I remember my parents showing up to the door saying that they had to go around this terrible accident and they said have you seen the news and so we turned on the news and of course all of the washington dc news stations at the time were just overwhelmed with with coverage of of this terrible accident and um it's one of those things that you just sort of think about and i go about my life for six or seven years and just every time i drove past the spot uh over the past six or seven years i would think about it and um always just wanted to find out what happened. Um, and I remember the, and I, I don't want to stop your line of questioning, but I remember the, um, I remember the initial reaction that day was that people thought that the drivers who, the driver who ran over the people, people thought that he or she or whoever it was, was sort of an innocent victim. Um, could have been you me, anybody, driving down the road in the middle of the night, and there was this, um, there was just sort of this overwhelming, uh, I don't want to say aggression, but sort of just a bunch of stories and a bunch of uh, 
criticism of the street racing industry in Southern Maryland, the illegal street racing industry in Southern Maryland. And basically the response was, what were those people doing in that road? Why were they there? Um, you know, that that's kind of foolish to be standing in the middle of the road. Um, and the cops even thought that. And so for months and months, um, basically everybody sort of pinned blame on the people who were there at the street race. And then six months later, these two young men got arrested and served indictments. And um, on June 29th, 2008, they were brought down to the police station and, and, and charged with uh, vehicular manslaughter, eight counts of them, both of the, both of the young men, even the, the one in the left lane who did not actually run it over anybody. Um, and so you sort of go from there and you have this long, long court case that sort of drags on for, for months and months in the case of the, uh, the second young man. The first young man was quickly, uh, the first young man who actually ran over the people, he was quickly, uh, he quickly pleaded guilty to the charges in, um, in January of 2010. Uh, the next day, the trial of his friend, uh, the guy who was in the car next to him, uh, started and it ran over the course of a month and there were just so many crazy things that happened in that court case. You had probably the be one of the best defense attorneys in Maryland there um, representing the young man, Tavon, and then you had two state's attorneys working the case on the other side of the, the, state, the elected state's attorney and the assistant state's attorney and they went at it with everything they had and it was covered by the news organizations and covered by everybody and it was just this crazy case that that could play out on law and order um, it happened over a month there were in the middle of it washington dc got hit with this storm called snowmageddon that everybody who lived there remembers it was the the, the great storm of 2010 where they had 38 to 48 inches of snow in the Washington DC region so they had to stop the case for that and just a lot of theater that happened and and uh, I mean the case was just was it was just there were a lot of things happening throughout the case that almost had nothing to do with the fact that you had a 22 uh, year old and a, a 20 year old um, facing upwards of 80 years in prison and and when it ended uh there was a mistrial in the case of the second young man and he wound up not going to jail and that was really all i ever knew about it until i started looking into it this year because that was sort of the last story that ran was that tavon taylor um tavon taylor did not go to prison because his he had a hung jury and Darren Bullock, the, the young man in the right lane who drove the white Crown Victoria, who ran over the people, he is in jail for 15 years. So I knew, I knew that much. I, just, I knew that one person was in jail and the other wasn't, and that none of the official street racers had been charged with anything. I didn't know why. I just sort of had sort of followed the case through the, uh, through the stories that were in the Washington Post and the, and the D.C. news stations. And... Um, it wasn't until I sort of I sent a note to Glenn Stout, the editor at SB Nation, and said, "Hey, I'd really like to just sort of look into this and see see what see what's there." This is one of those things that I've always wanted to know the answer to, and nobody back home knew the answer to it. Nobody knew what happened, where the other, you know, it's such a hard case to follow. I mean, even probably listening to me talk about it now is very confusing. And, um, 
It seems like it's it's been six or seven years since it actually happened, and you said you've thought about it a lot. Um, yeah. What made you finally just go ahead and email uh, Glenn at SB Nation uh, and and make that jump to say, hey, I think I want to I, I want to write about it, or maybe I'm ready to write about it now. I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not really sure why it happened now. Um, I had at the time I had just finished a long story for Charlotte Magazine. Um, or I was in the final stages of that story, and I knew I needed, a, I, I wanted another writing project to to tap away at on the side, and while I, you know, nights and weekends while I, after I finished my day job as editor, I knew I wanted something to, to write and something to dive into, and something to escape, and um, it sounds weird to say escape, but the, these stories they sort of just they reel you in, and you just sort of live them for four months, five months, six months at a time. And I just wanted something else to to do. And I, this was one of those things that I just always wanted to know the answer to. And uh, so I sent him the note, and and he said, sure, go look into it. Um, sort of the same way he's always he's said in the past, the other two stories I've done with him is, I don't have a contract for you yet because you don't really know what happened, but why don't you go ahead and look into it? And mm-hmm. With, after a couple of weeks of looking into it, I sort of knew that that I think I think there was a really good story there, or an interesting story, a terrible story, but a, an interesting story. Mm-hmm. It seems like this took a lot of time to report. Can you talk about about that? How much time it took you? Uh, everything you did to kind of tell a story. Um, and yeah, it, well, it started with just sort of reading everything I could find on it um, that was published. And and finding the end point that was uh, the, the last stories that were in, published in the newspaper, and those were all in 2010. That was when people stopped talking about the, the story, whether they were local newspapers or larger ones. Um, so I found that end point and then um, sort of took notes throughout the news stories and things like that. But then um, I sent a few notes uh, and some records requests to the Prince George's County Police Department and got... Uh, the reconstruction report back from the off the police police department and uh, it was 120 pages long. Uh, I read that and started interviewing people. Started calling uh, coaches through coaches and former teachers and things like that through the month of February, I guess uh, this this past year. Um, and just hey, who can you? Did you know these kids? Um, do you know where they are? Uh, do you know anybody who knows who, where they are? Uh, and can you tell me anything about them? And uh, they had sort of, you know, a lot of people didn't want to talk about it anymore. They, it was a really dark spot in not just the school, like the, the school where the two young men went to school, but the dark spot in the area. And it was just a, it was a terrible tragedy that a lot of people really wanted to to forget, even though they didn't know exactly what happened. Um, just one of those things where not knowing, I think, was the most comforting for a while. And so I talked to as many people as I could, and then um, then I made a trip to Maryland and went through the court records, the case files for both cases, and that took about two days to get through all of them to Von Taylor's uh, case file was about three times the size of uh, of Darren Bullock's because obviously Darren pleaded guilty and um, 
Tavon's case file was was huge. And when I opened that case file, um, it goes backwards. You know, the narrative in a case file is newest information first and oldest information at the bottom of the pile. So there were thousands of pages. And so the first pages I saw were that he, that Tavon had, in fact, also pleaded guilty in 2012, but that nobody had ever, nobody had, they had, Nobody had ever written about it. Nobody had ever talked about it. Nobody, the, the it, very clearly, the attorneys for the both sides didn't want to tell people that they had reached this uh, this plea agreement. And 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 believe it or not, I had actually talked to Tavon's lawyer three days before I went up there. Uh, the guy named Jay Wendell Gordon, the warrior lawyer, as he is. Uh, as he likes to call himself, and he was such an interesting guy. I mean, just <laughs> it was an hour long, hour and fifteen minute long conversation where he took me everywhere in the world. But um, <laughs> but he never mentioned this plea deal. He never mentioned it. Oh, and and so three days later, I'm sitting there on a Monday, staring at the course, the case file, and I see Alfred plead guilty to two counts of manslaughter, and the plea agreement was for five years probation and a thousand dollar fine. And uh, essentially, at that point, I knew he had pleaded guilty to, although they were different guilty pleas, the Alfred plea is sort of you admit that the prosecution has enough evidence to to probably find you guilty, but you don't, you don't actually admit to committing the crime. Mm-hmm. It's a strange plea, but so there were, it wasn't quite a full guilty plea, but it was guilty in the sense that it is guilty and it's on his record uh now um and when that happened when i saw that he had pleaded guilty to the same charge i just i and then i opened darren's file and saw that he was writing and hoping that he could go to college and things like that um i knew then that i wanted to write a story uh, that that just sort of showed that two two people can start off in the same spot, and um, and do the same thing, and end up in very different places, and and that could happen to any of us, and it could happen to, and that was sort of the that was where I wanted to go with the story was, it was such a, a heartbreaking and terrible terrible thing that happened, but you know sort of punishment and and um consequences are sort of a, a they they're like scattershot mm-hmm. in this in this case and in many cases you know we don't all face the same punishments for the same crime right. yeah. you you have a paragraph in the story uh that's fairly early um and just about where that that crash happens uh and you lead the paragraph with these two sentences a car meeting a body does terrible things if you don't want to know what those things are, please skip ahead to the next paragraph. Um, why, why did you have? Why do you have that in, that sentence? That second sentence in there, uh, and I ask because uh, for me, the uh, the reader almost has to read those horrible details to get the story's full effect. Um, can you talk about that second sentence and why why it's there? Um, yeah, I, throughout whenever I write a story, I try to read it from the perspective of uh, the people in it. And in this case, I was thinking about William Gaines, the person um, who was hit. And 
um, there were eight people who died, and the reason I chose his story was because he had three. He had his daughter there and his granddaughter there, and I could have told the stories of any of the other eight people through. Uh, and I, but I knew I wanted to tell one story, one, uh, one sort of illustration of what happens. And I picked him, and then as I'm reading through, you know, as I'm doing my personal editing on my second and third drafts of the story, I read it, and it just sort of hit me as not only do I need to respect the reader, but I need to sort of buffer this for for him, for his family. Um, I didn't want to look like I was exploiting somebody's somebody's terrible, uh, gruesome death. And so I wanted to buffer it in some way, not just for the reader, but for him. Mm-hmm. Did you ever consider not even having any of those really horrible details in the story at all? Um no, I didn't, uh, <laughs> and I don't know why. <laughs> I could sort of go on, but no, I read the. I mean, I, so I read two thousand pages of court transcripts. I guess that was one part of the reporting process that I forgot to mention. I ordered all the court transcripts uh, and purchased them, and um, they came to my house in Charlotte and. Uh, 38 pound box and, oh, and yeah the postage was something like $50 or something I don't remember um, and I read through it's you know it took me a month and a half to read through those while every I would go home at night and then I and read the, the court documents I would go home from work and just read through this 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 crazy court case and the medical examiner's testimony uh, lasted you know, it was it was 200 pages, and she basically just read off of her autopsy report. And when I read those things, I just I, I thought that I mean, it was terrible for me to read. It was terrible for anybody to have to hear in the courtroom, and it's all public record. And I just thought, you know, you never really know what happens when uh, you just hear somebody somebody gets hit by a car, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't know. There are a lot of We've had people in Charlotte recently step out into traffic as a way of committing suicide, and I think they think it's an easy way to go, but it's it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to me, I just I'd never really understood how how awful it was until I read those things. Yeah. So I never really crossed my mind to not put it in there. No. Right. Yeah. You you for the story, you really made an effort to track down and talk to Tavon uh, Taylor, which is, is the young man who ultimately did not go to jail. Uh, or prison, yeah. um, and you were ultimately unsuccessful, uh, right? Uh, yeah. And so, were you surprised that that didn't end up happening? That that interview that you th- that you thought you were going to have with him didn't happen. I wasn't surprised until it happened. No, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I I would say that I went. I drove from it's three hours from Charlotte to Raleigh. I live in Charlotte, and he lives in Raleigh, and uh, in our in our exchanges, uh, whether through email or text message, he seemed very open to the idea. Um, and I, you know, I, I thought it was going <laughs> to happen. And I drove up there and sort of sat at this barbecue restaurant in downtown Raleigh. And we were supposed to meet at 5.30. And um, it got to be 6.30, uh, 7, and... I had texted him twice and called him, and he never responded after that. Um, I don't know why he stopped. 
I don't know if he talked to somebody who told him to not talk to me or or what um yeah it was I wish he had uh, you know I wish that his perspective would have been in there. I don't think the story was an attack on uh was you know an attack on him for not being in prison. I really just kind of wanted to know what kind of life he was leading mm-hmm. um after not uh after sort of getting getting freed uh getting freed from the as a as a eighteen or you know he was eighteen when he committed the crime and he was twenty when he was on trial. It's so young to have to deal with something like that and and after sort of getting that second chance, I just kind of wanted to know what he was doing with it more than more than I had heard from other people and through searches and talks with his lawyer and things like that right 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 um you have you have a detail early in the story um about uh, the road being the type of place where a Pizza Hut driver and a Domino's driver might pull up at a light uh, while they're out delivering pizzas and, and start revving their engines and, and you know, be silly and, and maybe, you know, pretend race or whatever. Um, and it's not really about until the about the author uh, piece, your bio at the end, that we kind of get where the sourcing for that, that idea was. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and why, why you kind of left it at the at at that that way that it shows up uh yeah that was the one example that i knew for absolute certain happened you know i knew that you know i had always heard that you know my friends took off from that light and always heard that my dad used to take off from that light and uncles and people like that but that was the one that i could verify (laughs) and and without having glenn and i actually talked about that in the process he's like how do you know this so well, I did it, and and I said it, I think it would. Be, I don't want to be in the story. I didn't want uh, there to be any first person in it, mm-hmm. and um, and he we sort of questioned whether we should put a put me in there and just say how do you know this? Well, I, I know it because I did it, but um, no, that <laughs> to me that was just a. At the end, it was just kind of a way to say we've all started at the same place, mm-hmm. and that was sort of another. I mean, sort of. I thought of it as almost a secondary ending. If anybody still reads author bios, it was kind of a secondary ending. Like, yes, we all start at the same place, and we all end up in different places. And um, some people get punished, and some people don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, every every other detail in the story, I'll say this: that uh, the I ended up with several lists of details through through the reporting, and anything that had to do with, of course, if you read the story, this all started, Darren and Tavon were at a a party and a practice for their go-go band uh, before they took off and and raced up the road. And so any details from that party that were in that section, I I wanted to make sure were verified by two people um, in the court records and under oath. because a lot of things, you know, if one person said it, I thought, well, it made it happen. But if two people said it under oath, I thought, okay, well, that's safe to say, all right, that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other details, like the medical examiner, if I used that, if I used any one source details, it was all, they had to be an expert witness, like a medical examiner or something like that. And any of the other details about the place, um, 
they were sort of they were just verified by me and and how much I know how well I know the area, um, just sort of the the surrounding areas of the the texture to to Southern Maryland and Indian Head Highway and the trees and all that stuff. I mean, I knew all that um, and the boarded up windows and the department store that used to be. Uh, a big spot for people. I mean, all of those things were sort of just local knowledge that I had. But, um, yeah, it was either direct interviews with people or details that filled out the scenes had to be confirmed by two people who were at the party or who were on the scene or something like that under oath, and two or more people. And then any other details, I just... If any details were really conflicting and they were sort of telling in how they were conflicting, I made sure... I wanted to make sure that that I told the two. For instance, there's a story from one of the young men. Um, his stepfather says that Tavon drove his son home uh, and couldn't have been at the race. Well, his first story said, uh, his first story showed that Tavon actually dropped his son off 15 minutes before the race, which would have meant he could have been at the race. But then under oath in court, he said, no, 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 Tavon dropped him off right at the same time as his accident happened. So I wanted to sort of illustrate that mm-hmm. to show that, that people were changing their story throughout um, the case. Just to, for whatever reason, people change stories, whether you're protecting your friends or your friend's sons or, or whatever. Um, well, uh, we've been talking with Michael Graff about his story, uh, Two Lanes to Akakik. Uh, we're going to take a short break, Michael, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is Gangrel the Podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, The Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. We're back with Michael Graff, editor of Charlotte Magazine and a contributor to sites like SB Nation Longform. Uh, Michael, let's talk about uh, one of your stories that ran in the magazine that you edit, uh, Charlotte Magazine. Uh, The story is titled Grounded, and is about the greatest female skydiver, uh, possibly of all time, probably of all time. Uh, yeah. Can you talk real briefly about about the story? Yeah, Cheryl Stearns. Uh, she was a former. She was the first woman to ever be in the U.S. Army Golden Knights, and um, she was closing in on twenty thousand skydives, career skydives this fall. And um, if you think about skydiving in the way that I think about skydiving, which is you do it once and it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, um, 20,000 seems sort of uh, unbelievable. And so I set out, we had this issue coming up, just we were doing, calling it the passion issue. It was just people who were sort of obsessed with their craft. And we had a swim coach in um, Charlotte who is training 
most of the Olymp- U.S. Olympic, Olympic swim team, uh, Ryan Lochte and Cullen Jones, are all living in Charlotte, being trained under this guy. And we have uh, Jimmy Johnson, who's a NASCAR driver, who's obsessed with uh, sort of obsessed with winning and winning gracefully, almost. And just some other stories like that. And, and I wanted to write about Cheryl. Uh, I thought, you know, twenty thousand skydives is is unbelievable. You have to truly, truly want to do that to do that. And um, I had a personal relationship with skydiving. You know, my I had just written that uh, last spring, in the spring of 2014, uh, a story about my father and his strokes uh, for Washingtonian Magazine and how after he had these strokes, he started to tell us about this this life he had uh, as a skydiver in the 1960s. And he ended up going through all of his logbooks and finding out that he was like the 680, uh, 640 something person to have his, to earn his gold wings uh, with a thousand skydives and things like that. So skydiving always really it had just just started to really intrigue me, and and the culture of it uh, really was 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 on my mind. And so I was just looking up, looking through things about skydiving one afternoon, and found out that Cheryl, this the most the best skydiver female skydiver ever, lived in Charlotte. And I thought, <laughs> okay, well, great. Well, we'll write about her in Charlotte Magazine. Right. So um, if I if I read the story right, I get the sense, uh, because this is a story about how she has to stop skydiving because of, of, yeah. of an accident she's in, I, I get the sense, and I think I, I think I read this right, that you were reporting on her before her bicycle crash. Is that correct? Yeah, this was going to be a simple profile of somebody who's going to get 20,000 skydives. Um, I happened to call her right at the time when she was uh, 30 or 40 short, we interviewed a few times in October and uh, early November, and I went out and saw her uh, jump out of a plane 13 or 14 times one weekend in November with a photographer. And we, you know, to me, it was going to be a very good profile. I thought of a really interesting woman, and and then the next weekend she was she was 13 skydives away from 20,000, and she was going to she was timing it so that she could do it in Dubai, and we had worked out that she would call me as soon as it happened. We would talk about the details about it, and I would try to fill out the scene that way. And uh, the next weekend, though, I got a, she sent me a text message, and uh, it was the, probably the longest text message I've ever received. It was probably something like 200 words long. And it was just, well, I guess your, and I remember she started it like this. She said, well, I guess your story's done. And uh, I got hit by a car riding my bike the other day and I suffered a concussion. I can't fly anymore. I can't skydive anymore. And at the same time, her mom had fallen in her nursing facility and uh, basically the same day and hurt herself. And so Cheryl was on one floor of the hospital and her mom was on another floor of the hospital, uh, recovering from these head, head injuries. And, uh, I sort of stuck with Cheryl over the next couple of weeks, and as she tried to, she went home and she had scars all over her face and things like that, and she, um, she was trying to recover from it just physically and mentally, and um, she was grounded for a full year by the air. She was a pilot. She was grounded for a full year by U.S. Airways and uh, told she couldn't skydive again, and she didn't know whether she would because every, I would come over there and talk to her, and she would sort of blink really hard at the headaches, and she would just sort of pinch her head, and she would say, I can't talk anymore. Uh, we'll have to finish this uh, later. 
so I would come back the next day and we would we would talk some more and um you know our deadline came and we had to write a story and believe it or not actually uh, uh the night of our deadline the day the day before we were supposed to print it uh, I called her to fact check the last few things of it uh last few things in the story and she told me that her mom had passed away uh that day mm-hmm. and um so there were just so many things that happened. She was basically it was a story about this woman who can sort of fly through anything, and fly in the sky and and fly better than anybody who's ever who's ever jumped out of a plane, and who was sort of just struggling to understand all these terrible things that were happening on the ground, and she was sort of falling into depression as as we were doing the story. So, and I you know I talked to her on the phone and I said Cheryl. I, I, I would like to mention this at the end of the story that your mother's passed away. I want you to know that you're telling me as uh, somebody who's a reporter. And she said, "Okay, that's okay." And we talked about that for a little bit, and um, so I wound up writing it, and um, it seemed to resonate with people. <laughs> yeah. It. Um, did, so did this piece actually end up running in in the people who are the, the issue you described? It ran in that that issue still, or did it you did. have to change the timing? No, it did. It ran in the same issue. Um, it to me, what she had done was no less amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, her nineteen thousand nine hundred eighty-seven skydives is no less amazing than twenty thousand. Right. Um, it's just sort of a number, um, and her story was no less amazing because, I mean, even on the ground, you can tell this this person who couldn't stop and who didn't want to do anything, anything but be up there. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that the end of the story is that. Um, and six months later, um, after some pretty hard bouts with depression, I actually went to her mom's funeral just to say hi again. And she was she was just really down. Um, and the um, but somehow you know April came around in mid-April, and the doctor, the neurologist, cleared her to jump out of a plane again to actually go up in a plane and jump out again. She was nervous about that, but every year she runs a Cheryl Stern skydiving school. Um, when you become that prominent at skydiving, people want to learn mm-hmm. how to skydive from you, and she runs it in California. And she went out there and she texted me and she said, "I think I'm going to jump tomorrow. Um, I just wanted you to know, and we'll see what happens." And so she did, and I guess it went well. And on April 20th, she jumped with. Um, I think 13 or maybe 13 to 16 people jumped in formation with her, and they were from eight different countries. These were all friends from all over the world who had flown in to do this jump with her, and uh, and to do the, to do the school with her, but also to like make sure that they were there when she did 20,000. So on April 20th, she did 20,000 jumps, and uh, and she's never she doesn't drink or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I said, so how'd you celebrate? And she said. <laughs> She said, when we got down, and I had cake. <laughs> that was it. That was how she celebrated with uh, with all these friends from all over the world that she had accumulated all these years. That's great. I was, I was going to ask, uh, you know, if she had, had gotten back to, to skydiving again, it's good to, to hear that she did. Yeah. Um, uh, in the story, the one thing that really fascinated me about the story uh, is the story structure. Uh, and as I read it, uh, I realized that, you know, the end of the story uh, with her skydiving is actually a point chronologically before the beginning of the story. Um, And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you set the story up that way. Um, 
yeah, because I didn't want to uh, fool the reader into the accident, um, I thought about that a lot. So I'm doing this story about a skydiver, and yeah, the first, the end scene actually was probably going to be the first scene mm-hmm. in the story. Um, either that or if I could have built her 20,000 skydive in Dubai, that probably would have been the first scene in the story um, if it was just a typical profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when she got into the accident, I my first thought was, what do I do? You know, what do I do with this? Uh, I'm still going to write the story. Oh, after I made the decision to, to continue to write the story, I just, what am I going to do with the accident? Mm-hmm. And I sort of sort of floated it out there with my publisher and a few people and just said, you know, what do you, I mean, if, what if I just left it at the end? And he said, no, readers will be really mad at you if you, if you only introduce the accident at the end of the story. Um, and so I just made a decision. I was like, you know what, we're going to start with the accident. We're going to be really upfront with that. And then um, we'll sort of weave around uh, and, and back to what she was really good at. Um, and that was, you know, once I decided that we were going to start with the accident, I knew that the last thing I wanted was to have her last, if it was going to be her last jump, was that to have that be the last scene that people saw. Um, it turns out it wasn't her last jump, which is great, but if it was going to be her last jump, I wanted to end the story on something that she was an expert at mm-hmm. and not the, and not the terrible accident. Right, right. Um, you mentioned uh, that you you ran some scenarios past the publisher uh, of the magazine. Since you are kind of the top editor, when you're working on a piece, who do you, do you work with somebody who edits you? Uh, yeah, yeah. We have a well. I, we have an articles editor here uh, who is I'm actually her boss, but Lisa Rapp, who's here, and she's a great writer herself, and um, she's a great editor too. And when it comes down to line editing and things like that, I usually um, that's who I send my story to. Um, but the publisher is, a for, is the former editor of the magazine, and he he took a new job as publisher and hired me as editor. So he still has, uh, <laughs> even though he's, he's, he spends a lot of time trying to make money now, he, uh, <laughs> he still has some editing skills. And so we just, I mean... It, it wasn't he wasn't line editing the story. It was just me talking to him about the story, mm-hmm. and and he's interested in stories. So yeah, uh, it's it is weird. It's strange. Uh, I know Lisa uh, and the and the senior editor we have here. It's it's strange for them to edit me. I think because <laughs> I'm their boss. Uh, so a lot of times I you know I think a lot of people do this. I have other friends that I kick stories to from time to time and say if you have time, will mm-hmm. you please. Just read this and tell me if it's terrible, and read, you know, before I give it to somebody who, somebody who is is, is an editor under me. And please tell me if it's terrible because I don't want to embarrass myself in front of people who work for me. <laughs> uh, doing, I mean, doing stories like this, it takes so much time. Uh, you know, this type of this type of journalism, uh, this type of reporting and writing. How do you fit that in with the regular demands of of being the editor of the magazine? Yeah, I am crazy, I guess, (laughs) first of all. Um, No, I sort of need to. I think um, I I remember the first, when I started as editor of Charlotte Magazine, one of the first things I did was uh, email 
uh, some people around the country who were also editors. And one of the people I emailed was Amanda Heckert um, mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. And I said, hey, Amanda, we're about the same age. Um, you're doing a great job there. She'd been in Indianapolis about a year. And I said, you're doing a great job there. Please tell me what I need to know. And um, she, to her credit, in a busy day, I'm sure, she wrote back a really just a, probably the most wonderful note you can get from somebody uh, you're seeking advice from. And she said one of the things you should know is that when you're an editor, the, one of the last things you do is edit. Um, you know, when you're the when you're the top editor, you're not. That, that's that's not necessarily what you do. You're dealing with budgets and you're dealing with people, and and mostly it's people. Mm-hmm. Mostly the job is about people, whether it's people on staff or whether it's sort of maintaining relationships or in the community, especially at a city magazine where I'm. You know, I have to go to dinners at fundraisers and things like that and just try to make sure that, you know, people know that the magazine's here and try to know that they, they know that the editor is approachable. And so I go to a lot of events and go to a lot of new openings for shops and restaurants, just things like that, just to to maintain relationships. So to me, the job is so, uh, the day job is so, uh, so scattered with various, um, with so many different things going on, bouncing back and forth from one conversation to the next and making decisions all day long, that I almost need something to balance that out. And uh, so I always try to have a project that is happening that I can escape, uh, that I, like I said earlier, I can escape to and just sort of say, all right, well, I'm going to live with this for a long time and it's going to be the thing that helps me sleep because I'm thinking about it and not the 500 other things that I have to do the next day. Uh, that those, those types of things are therapy. I don't know. They, you know, they're, it's maybe strange to get just a little, I mean, personal, I've had some, you know, had some tough relationships in my life. I have, I've, I've been divorced and sometimes these, to, to a great person, by the way, but sometimes these things, they, these stories, they just sort of help me understand uh, the world, and they sort of make sure that I'm out there connecting with people who probably uh, who just have various things going on in their lives that I've never experienced, and so it sort of helps me get out of my own world. And just, I just, you know, it's, I just love, um, love sort of being married to these stories for five or six months at a time, and, and then, and then seeing what happens to them. Yeah, uh, Charlotte Magazine's been doing some really great uh, long-form narrative journalism. Um, and I, w- I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why that's that's been important to you as an editor to have um, that type of work in the magazine. Uh, it's the, the idea that you zigzag when everybody else zags. Um, I, you know, there's so much stuff that comes at you on a daily basis. Um, we have so many things in Charlotte, that, you know, so many organizations that are, quote, publications, whether they're online or, or print, and they're, sh- you know, shoving 300 and 400 stories a day at people, hoping that they can get them with a headline or this, and that's on top of the national stuff. That's on top of, you know, last week we had a video of a, in Charlotte, we had a video of a snake coming down from a cabinet I eating an egg that. go viral, you know? <laughs> And these are the things that, that we're competing for people's attention with. And, and the idea is that Charlotte Magazine is going to be the place where you're going to get your 3,000, your 4,000, in some cases up to 9,000, 10,000 word stories. 
and you're going to remember them, and you're going to forget about the snake and the egg, and you're going to remember, you know, that to me, that that's my hope, is that uh, we stand out in the market that way, as opposed to standing out by doing a bunch of little things. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, like, a lot of city and regional magazines are really all, there's a lot of them that are embracing this kind of idea. Uh, so much of the really great stuff that I'm seeing out there is coming at that level of magazine. Is that, do you think, is that accurate in my perception? Yeah, I believe so. We just, uh, we had the CRMA, the City and Regional Magazine Conference in Dallas two weeks ago. And, um, yeah, I went down there and hung out with all the editors and some of the writers, uh, Robert Sanchez from 5280, who you've had, uh, I know, and Mike Mooney from Dallas and uh, Tony Rehagen from Atlanta. All these guys are great writers, and they could be writing anywhere. But um, they, they're they at these city magazines, and they're producing these great stories uh, that matter to their city and to a larger audience. Uh, I, yeah, it's... It's it's certainly a commitment that I see in a lot of other city magazines across the country. What, what are you looking for when somebody sends, you have somebody who wants to do something long uh, and narratively uh, for your magazine, what are you looking for in terms uh, of just feel, I guess? Yeah, last night I was at a meeting and a guy uh, said he's always wanted to write for us. Uh, this was at a professional journalist meeting in Charlotte, a local professional journalist, and he said he's always wanted to write for us, and he said, what are you looking for? And I said, the stories that give you goosebumps, Um, you know, because if they give you goosebumps, there's a really good chance that they might give me goosebumps, but please don't send me an idea that you think I want. Mm -hmm. That's a big difference, I think. Um, I think a lot of times people get caught up in trying to to please an editor. we, we publish 12 months a year, so if you write for us, it's never going to be a full-time job. You mm-hmm. know, it's, So if you're going to write for us, I'd really like it to make sure it's a, a project that you're interested in and passionate about. Um, I think I mentioned uh, yeah, the story in April of 2014 that we ran. Um, it was a story about a woman from Charlotte who became a cop on an island and off of the coast of North Carolina and in 1999 she was she was found dead and there's a there's been a question ever since whether it was murder from either drug uh, drug folks who were smuggling drugs in off the island or whether she committed suicide and Adam Rue the writer had been working on the story he was a TV right he was a TV reporter his dad was a TV reporter he'd grown up in TV but he had been working on the story ever since he was in college he had done it first for as a TV project in college but he just said it's it's something that I can't I haven't ever been able to shake mm-hmm. and he said I've always really wanted to dive into it and at the time he had never really written anything long for us and I said well let's go for it I mean if it's something you're really interested in go for it and it really it turned out to be one of our biggest stories. Um, I, I think a lot of times passion for a subject can can overcome any other uh, deficiencies that a writer might have. Yeah, I mean, you've had some luck with, with TV guys uh, in yeah. your magazine, right? <laughs> yeah, gosh. <laughs> I, <laughs> at the same conference, the, a lot of the editors always ask, uh, last week, the CRMA conference, the editors always ask the same question, where do you find your writers? And they're not just asking it of me, they're asking it of everybody. Where do you find writers is sort of the general question that people face. And I always laugh. I'm TV, TV, I don't know why, yeah. Um, 
Jeremy Markovich, obviously, who you've had on here, um, had never written a... <laughs> this was before I got here. He was in TV. He was a producer at the local NBC station, and he had never written a magazine story before, and he pitched this one story on a blind hiker named Trevor Thomas who hiked the Appalachian Trail, even though he had uh, overcoming blindness and all these things. And uh, he'd hiked the entire length of the Appalachian Trail. And... Um, <laughs> the story starts in just the, just the simplest of, of ways. It's like he's he's hiked through rain, sleet, and snow, basically, or something like that. And it's just a really, it's a powerful opening, and it, it, it's great throughout. And, I mean, those are the first words that Jeremy had ever written for a magazine, and they go on to win the profile of the year right. in the City and Regional <laughs> Magazine conference. So, so TV guys, I guess, can, I don't know. There are a lot of things, I think, I try to think about this, and I think TV guys maybe, you know, because there's, they're so tuned into seeing things. Mm-hmm. Maybe they catch details that that other people don't. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think I think that's I think a lot of it is they they think in pictures. Yeah, I think which you have to do, and I teach my narrative students that all the time. You 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 can't think in words. You have to think in pictures when you're doing this type of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's very true. So. Um, well, Michael, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks a lot. It's been so much fun talking with you, and I'm really glad you you joined the podcast, and, and I'm looking forward to reading more of your work and, and everything you have in Charlotte Magazine. Thanks well, for fa- yeah. thanks for stopping by. Gosh, thanks, Matt. Yeah, you've had a great lineup. I don't know where I fit in at all, but you've had some great people, so I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Michael Graff, editor of Charlotte Magazine, who has also published stories on SB Nation, Politico, and in the Washingtonian Magazine. We've linked to several of Michael's stories on our website, gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at gangrypodcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes for free. Just go to the iTunes store and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.